Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, well, Sunny is joined by former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines, Michael Clinton, to discuss his new book, Roar. So tune in and hear his transformative and proven process for fulfilling your dreams, no matter your age. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. Um, I will do the rest of the information in just a moment, but I have to laugh, Benny. <laughs> I had no idea you were going to do that. Yeah, well, but you know. the title of our book today sure does lend itself to a sound effect there. Took so. me all day to wrangle that cat. Oh. All day. Well, thank you, Benny, as usual, for being on point. Um, <laughs> so, Sunny in Seattle is here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines and apparently roars as well. Yeah. <laughs> You can always find the show archives at 1150kknw.com, and the show is also on iTunes and Podcast One. You can find out more about me through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. Yeah, well, thank you, Benny. I mean, it, it, the, the title really does lend itself, and if the door was open, you had to walk through. Yeah, you gave me the effect. opportunity. Uh, you know, you could add any <laughs> adage, you know, you set it up there, spike it, hammer it down, slam dunk it. Yes, and let me just say, I had no idea Benny was going to do that, and so he <laughs> hinted right as the the pro or the intro music starts to play that he added a little surprise, and I'm like, I know exactly you what you saw did. It. You saw it. <laughs> I should have seen that coming with Benny. But anyway, Benny, how are you doing? Doing very well, thank you very much. Yeah, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. Yeah, to, I mean holidays or all of it, all of the things. Yeah, okay. Festivus for the rest of us, yeah. whichever you celebrate. <laughs> I mean, it's all good. I would assume having two little ones, you are constantly reminded of upcoming Santa visits. They are, and yeah, like and they're they're counting it down. Like their, their little calendars getting crossed off yeah. each day, and they're loving it. Oh well, that's very good. Well, yeah, I have to say. I am not as much in the Advent calendar towards the Christmas holiday that I am. Countdown to Divinity School applications being ah. due. The first one is January 6th, and I'm beginning to feel the pressure, Benny. Uh-oh. Yeah. Deep so, breath, Sonny. Deep breath. We'll take you a lot of deep breath between mm-hmm. now and then. But anyway, good to see your smiling face. Maybe you should get outside table. and roar a little bit. <laughs> Let it loose. I probably will be doing quite a bit Atta of that. Girl. Yeah. But. Thanks, Benny. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we will go ahead and bring on our wonderful guest today. Um, I'm really excited uh, because, well, we can talk a little bit more about this once Michael comes on, but this book was very timely for where I am at this very moment in my life, and that will be, I think, become abundantly clear as to why when we get the conversation going. But I'm always um, I'm always encouraged and have to smile when a book comes across my desk that is uh, not only, I think, something that will be so important or helpful for listeners, but also is so applicable to my own life. So this is one of those moments, but give you a little background. Um, Our awesome guest today is Michael Clinton. He is the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and is currently special media advisor to the Hearst Corporation CEO. He is also an author and photographer who believes that everyone should strive to live their fullest life possible. 
especially in the second half of life. Michael has traveled through 124 countries, has run marathons on seven continents, is a private pilot, a part owner of a vineyard in Argentina, has started a nonprofit foundation, holds two master's degrees, and still has a long list of life experiences he plans to tackle. He resides in New York and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the book we're going to be talking about today is Roar into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. Um, so, of course, that's why Benny gave us that awesome sound effect. For the website to find out more about both the book and Michael, you can visit RoarByMichaelClinton.com. That is RoarByMichaelClinton.com. Michael, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Sonny, so great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. And I also love that sound effect. Yeah. Of so I may have to co-op that somehow, but thank you. We'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> I okay, have to. Is that the first, is this the first show that's added the little sound effect in, Michael? Or has anyone else well, done that to date? In, in maybe one of the few, but there was a lot of roaring going on with lots of other interviewers. So. I'm sure. Well, we sure are glad you're here. You're here to talk about this book. Um, and as I said, I hope you don't mind if I just share a little bit. Um, so this book, one of the things that I loved so much about it were all of the stories. Stories are just my favorite. And you have over 40 firsthand inspiring stories of folks who have really done incredible things with the second and third and beyond chapters of their or halves of their life or thirds of their life. Um, and um, I, as we sit here today, um, I am in my mid-40s, and I have been uh, an attorney in a past life, um, or a past chapter of my life, and um, have done some other things, but I am in the process of applying to go back to divinity school um, for mm -hmm. a master's of divinity, um, and I loved that the book concluded with two folks who were doing that very thing. It felt very serendipitous and timely. So our conversation, I'll just say, is not just for our listeners, Michael. It is for me, too. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, th thank you. I think the, the amazing thing is that we can start something new at any time in our lives. And um, I'm going to, to uh, tell you that you're going to have an amazing journey because I went back to school to get a master's degree in my 60s in nonprofit philanthropy. And so I am a proud graduate now with the master's from Columbia in the topic. And so uh, it's great being a student and having this concept of lifelong learning in all aspects of our lives. Absolutely. And, and I have to say, I loved the story that you shared about going back in your 60s and getting this master's degree. And you said, I believe how you put it was, you know, you kind of thought you'd give it a semester and see what it felt like to write papers and being a classroom. And man, you were hooked after that first semester. I was. I mean, it's, what is interesting is when you when you pick the thread of something that you're interested in and you put your toe in that water. You know, I, I tend to be, as you at the top of the hour gave a little bit of my bio, which is a little exhausting. I tend <laughs> to be a um, all in person, as you can as you yeah. can imagine. So, you know, not everyone has to go do a master's degree. You can do um, certificates. You can take courses. There are things called MOOCs, M-O-O-C-S, massive, mass open online courses to learn something new. Um, you know, I was so interested in my topic that I did want to turn it into a degree, which was 12 courses. But that's, you know, not for everyone. The key is to find something you're interested in and get your brain excited about it and learn something new. 
whether it's a new course in your life as you may take with your divinity degree, or it's just you know learning something that is of interest to you in, in, in any topic. It's really important to keep that going. Absolutely. And this book is so chock full of inspiring stories of folks who have done just that. Um, and most of the people that are featured here are somewhere 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, but I know it goes even beyond that. Um, but I want to back up a little bit before we dive into some of the content in the book and talk a little bit about your story. Um, one of the things that um, I loved reading about, of course, in your bio, we've learned that you were the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines. Um, and so for folks out there, I'm sure most people are familiar with Hearst, but this is the, the that umbrella covers so much. Um, and you were, I think, as another feather in your hat, you were the youngest editor of GQ, for example, when you were, I think, 34. Yeah, youngest publisher, publisher. in the industry. Yep, publisher. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is when I reflect on my life now, um, you know, my my resume of experiences is quite quite exciting for me and you know a role model for many in my family and friends and at large but what one of the important things for me to do in the book was to tell about my beginnings which that's was what a, i wanted to ask about <laughs> no, thank you thank you um you know a very poor working class family in pittsburgh um you know six children uh no advantages no money so to speak uh no education in the family history i'm the first one to go to college in my family. And so I thought it was important for me to tell that story because when you come from the bottom, um, you know, you have a possibility to build an incredible life. And, you know, I came to New York with $60 in my pocket and a new college degree with no contacts and no connections anywhere. And I found my way. But the story is it doesn't have to be someone in their 20s. It can be someone who wants to reignite at 50 or 60. We're going to have a very, if you're 50 and, or 60 and healthy today, there's a very good chance you're going to live to be 90. So you have a big opportunity to start a new course uh, in life, to begin something new at any age, regardless of what you've lived thus far. But my story was one to say whether you, regardless of where you are and what your situation is, own it, own your, own your situation at the moment and go from there. And so, um, you know, mine happens to be a great, I mean, mine's not unique. I mean, there are many, many people who have stories like mine, but that's my story. Yes. And I want to just also dig a little deeper on what you just shared. Um, mm -hmm. I know often when we're in our 20s, or at least in my experience, was I don't even have enough perspective to really be afraid of some of the big leaps that I'm making or the risks that I'm taking. So I'm just curious, two questions here, really. Were you scared when you got to New York when you were 20 and only had $60? And, and then uh, kind of as a stacked question here, what wisdom do you have uh, for folks who are like, I I'm too scared to take that risk, whether at 20 or at 50? Yeah, well, first of all, um, youth is sometimes naive. <laughs> and, uh, that's the beauty of youth. Yep. And when I went to New York in my early 20s, I was sort of had this dream of being in the magazine publishing industry. That's where I wanted to what I wanted to do. And New York was kind of the place where you had to do it. So I was all, you know, wired up to go for it. Yep. And so um, no fear. 
uh, it was, you know, it was a blank slate. And I was like, well, we're going to give this a shot. And it ended up to be a good story. One of the things, and many people ask me this question that you asked about, you know, how, do, how does one start? And I think what one has to do is identify where it is that they want a change or a course of action to pivot into. And that takes work. And the 40 people who I interviewed, what was amazing about each of their stories, great inspirational stories, as you said, uh, they all put a year or two into really going deep into themselves to really understand what it is that they wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that work. And the book has lots of tools and you know, hints as to how to do that in a practical sense. Um, and once you get to that place where you've identified it, you have a much bigger comfort zone in terms of taking the courageous first step. So one of the stories I love in the book was a woman by the name of Stephanie, who at 53, she had been a book editor for her whole career. And she decided that ultimately she wanted to be a medical doctor, which that decision at 53, as you know, is you know, a big decision. And she took the first step uh, which was to go back to school and start studying things like chemistry and biology because she had been an English major. And as she started taking those courses, it validated that she loved science and that she knew this was the right thing. It was a long journey and she tells the story and lots of you know, starts and fits and she's now in her 60s and she's a doctor. And what I love it, you know, she would say, you know, I became a doctor in my, at 63 and I may do that for 20 years and that's okay. You know, that's yeah. a whole new career that's going to bring me purpose and, and interest. So some, you got to spend that time thinking about where is your issue? Is it in your career life, your lifestyle, your relationships, before you can make that courageous first step? I love that you shared her story because I pulled several stories that I wanted to make sure and ask you about, and hers was mm. one of the big ones. I found oh, that yeah. to be so inspiring. And it, I will just say, of the folks that you share in the book, hers is incredibly inspiring, but they all are. You think, oh, she's an outlier. No, no, no. All the stories you share are similar in nature and like these really amazing things that folks have done at often at ages where um, perhaps even more so in the past, people are like, oh, you're too old to be going back to school, to medical school or doing this or that. So um, thank you for sharing her story. Mm -hmm. It was one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this, I, I was reading in the acknowledgments of the book, and you share that this idea of ROAR, which I will just say, by the way, ROAR is the title of the book, but ROAR is also an acronym for this transformational system or four-step process that, um, I, Michael, I hope we can talk more about yeah. that for how exactly to do <laughs> what it is we've been talking mm -hmm. about. But you mm -hmm. share that the idea of ROAR came together as you were preparing to wind down your 42-year publishing career. And you wanted to leave all the amazing people at Hearst with some ideas to think about for their own professional and personal futures. Can you tell us a little bit more about this process, how it came to you, and the, the story of wanting to share with the folks that you were leaving behind? Yeah, I think, you know, it was, it was kind of my, um, you know, sort of, if you will, last lecture to the whole management team mm. at Hearst. And one of the things that there were two parts to answer that question. The first is, as I was thinking about my own personal journey, everything that I read and all the research that I did was all about winding down. And I was more interested in the concept of winding up mm. because as I mentioned earlier, 
the, the old script that many of us were handed was a script that was created in the 1930s and 40s when you retired at 60 and the life expectancy was mm, a few years later, maybe at 62, 63, and you had a couple of years of quote retirement and then you passed on to the next life. <laughs> yeah. And you know that's not the story anymore. The, the story has changed. We're all gonna live assuming we're healthy and take care of ourselves into our 80s. And so what's the new script? And I wanted to find the people who were writing the new script, the pioneers. I call them actually the reimagineers, these 40 people who I found and to tell their story and to say to people, you too can be one of these reimagineers because you're going to have a long life. And in fact, two weeks ago or so, Stanford University came out with a new study about the 100-year life and how this is going to be attainable for many people not just who are 50 today, but more importantly for young children today who are, you know, are being raised in our, in our country, they're going to have a good shot of living to be 100. So what does this all look like? So this was on my mind as I was thinking about my own next steps. And Roar sort of was this sense of hope and possibility for people that, that I was talking to in my company mm -hmm. that always think about everything is possible, not just in business, but in your life. And so anyway, that, that was sort of the kernel of it. And as I thought more about it and got feedback from the team, what I realized was the message that was given was, was very unique and fresh and it had a different kind of conversation around it that then led into thinking over the summer of 2019 um, that there was a bigger story to tell and so that's when I started conceptualizing the book and the what ultimately became Roar um, over that summer and into that fall and of course ironically when we all shut down in the spring of 2020 um, I had already had the book deal so I spent that spring and summer writing the book mm. uh, and the timing was pretty fortuitous. Absolutely. Uh, I am curious, just because COVID was something that directly impacted not only the writing of the book, but I would assume the folks that you were speaking to, um, did you notice any COVID-specific impacts on the lives of the people you were talking to in the writing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's there's one story um, a woman named Susan Black. Susan was in the hospitality business for 40 years. Uh, she was in her uh, early 60s. Her best friend died just prior to COVID. And she took an assessment of her life. And she had realized that her health and, and fitness, she'd gained 100 pounds. Mm. And she knew that she was not on a good health path. So she actually took a leave of absence from her job um, this was about a year before COVID hit, and she went into a very serious one-year regimen. She lost 100 pounds. She decided not to go back to her job because of the stress involved. She was about 60 at the time. Mm -hmm. But then when COVID hit, her mother was in a, a nursing home, and we all know the isolation that people had in nursing homes. And she and her mother cooked up a little idea, not so little, called Wowzitude, which was having people in nursing homes be able to go on Zoom sessions to interact with each other. And many of these people were down the hall from each other, but they couldn't interact individually. Yeah. And they launched this business. Her mother was in her 90s 
and Susan was about 61. It's become, you know, a really terrific business. I write about it in the book. Sadly, her mother did die of COVID in the nursing home at 95. And, you know, Susan would say that the legacy of Wowzitude from she and her mother building this together um, was the positive thing that came out of this health crisis that we all dealt with. So that that was a that was a, a good a good story about how COVID kind of created a new direction for this woman, Susan Black. Yes. So COVID, of course, is a, a very specific um, event that could impact or motivate someone to make changes. What are some of the other things that you saw, um, life circumstances? Um, what, is it illness or, or is it the death of a loved one? Is it just a slow transformation that you're not happy in what you're doing? Like, What were some of the things that you see that were the biggest motivators for people to take the step toward the next chapter? Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a great question. Because I would argue that the ROAR process, this four-step process that we talk about in the book, mm -hmm. is something that should be a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. It is not something that is a one-off. Because there are natural things that we go through in our lives that create change for us, whether we like it or not. We may lose a job. We may be laid off. Our partner may leave us. We may have a natural disaster. Our kids leave us and we're empty nesters. And now what? Right? Mm -hmm. And so there are things that happen to us. And then there are things that we proactively want to do to happen for us. And so, you know, the tough decision to leave a marriage, which there are several stories about that in the book, the tough decision to... Um, to leave and change and to make a major change in a lifestyle. So some of these are things that happen to us. And some of these are things that we want to, we want to change for ourselves, but the key is to always be conscious and aware of that and to build, start always building some, some parallel lives. So I, I call it, there's a wonderful chapter, my favorite in the book called life layering, yep. which is, is a great process for people to, to address this. Uh, in their own individual lives. But what we do know is that life is a series of changes. I'll share a story about my own, my own mother. And my mom was an amazing reimagineer. And, you know, you might recall some of the stories I tell about her. Yeah. She, she was an ordinary woman, woman with extra, an extraordinary way of approaching life. But when my mom was 85, I said, Mom, you know, what's your favorite future? Which <laughs> is part of the first R. And my mother, without skipping a beat, said, well, to have a happy death. And I was like, okay, I guess when you're 85, you do think about that. Yeah. You know, you think about that. And mom was reading the Sunday newspaper and she dozed off and fell asleep and didn't wake up. And so we would call that a happy death because she didn't suffer and go through lots of, um, lots of pain. Uh, so I think you're always thinking wherever you are in what stage in your life, you're always thinking about or should be thinking about how can I have more purpose, more engagement with the world, with my family? What are the things that are going to keep me dynamic and vital? Yes. So we've, we've uh, mentioned or kind of uh, walked around the, the ROAR and the, the acronym or the four-step process. Do you mind just sharing what that is so people get an idea of what we're talking about when we say the R or the O? 
Sure, sure. The, the, the first R is uh, reimagine your life before others do it for you. <laughs> yeah. So there were some things we just talked about that. Uh, my, my, my line is, you know, reimagine your favorite future. Mm-hmm. What is that? What is the process? How do you think about what is your favorite future? And, you know, one of the, the, the tools that we talk about in the book is if you're 50, go to 90 and work backwards. Mm. What does the rest of your life look like? What has it been? What have you done? What have you, what have you, what is your legacy? What is your contribution? What are your dreams? What are your, what are your, what's your wish? Um, and then how do you take the practical steps to get there? You know, 40 years might may be daunting for some people. So I say, you know, go out 10 years, you know, start building your favorite future. And there's some different tools and approaches in that chapter. The O is own who you are. You know, not only own where you came from, but own where you are right now. You know, own your numbers, your health numbers, your financial numbers, own your strengths, your weaknesses, but own your opportunities um, and, 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 and know, your, you know who you are. I, I like to banish the word midlife crisis. I like to use the word midlife awakening mm. because you mentioned earlier you're in your mid-40s. You know, you've lived an adult life now. You know a lot about yourself as, as anyone does when they're in their mid-40s. They know what they're good at, what they're not great at. And they know what's worked, what hasn't worked. We've all made dumb mistakes. We've all made smart decisions. Um, so that midlife awakening gives you the platform to now build, build the second half. Yep. So uh, own all that stuff. The A is the action plan, um, life layering, which we can get into a deeper discussion on how to be courageous, um, how to edit, you know, I'm in the magazine business. So editing is a really important process, which we can delve into. Yep. And then the final R is, you know, reassess your relationships with your family, your friends, your workplace, your community, because the people around you, especially the close-ins are the ones who are going to help you facilitate where you want to go. And we, we all know the burden of our partner and our kids and our relatives and our mothers and our fathers who say, you know, well, you can't do that or you can't do this. I like to say, let's banish the words age appropriate and let's talk person appropriate Yep. because you may want to become a parent at 50 for the first time. You may want to start a new business at 65. You may want to go back to school and learn something new in your 60s. You may want to fall in love and get remarried at 80 or get married for the first time. I have a friend who got married for the first time at 75. So let's, you know, let's think about the possibilities as opposed to the limitations that are put on ourselves and also the people around us. Yes. And I, I, I think while the narrative is changing, I feel like it's changing slowly. Like you're out there on the leading edge of thought when it comes to these things. Um, and so often the cultural messages we may get um, really get ingrained. Um, and after reading your book, it's just story after story after story. I feel like it actually has a way of of changing the neural pathways a bit or maybe at least putting cracks in the old story and showing um, that that we need to be looking at this in a completely different way. And what is possible is so far beyond what we may believe um, currently right now, given the cultural messages we receive. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that's, um, that is the, the, the message in a, in, a, in a beautifully articulated way. 
you know, the, the, I think what's going to happen is the people are going to create the change, these reimagineers. Think about this. 34% of the country in the U.S. are now 50 plus. Mm -hmm. Every day, 10,000 people turn 65. And in 2030, one in five Americans will be 65 uh, or, or older. And this crowd, and of course, it's many of them are the boomers, but it's the next generation that's already in that cohort. I mean, the Gen X is already in their 50s. You know, this crowd does not want the old script. Mm-hmm. And what is happening is there were many, 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 many people are rewriting the script, as I mentioned earlier. And they're going to be the ones to force the change in the cultural images and the cultural language and the and brands and how they represent the 50 plus market and the possibilities that that's all going to happen over the next decade or two. And the next generations are going to refine it so that the word retirement is going to be not be what it has represented, but it's this notion of refiring is really going to be, you might retire from one job or one career in your forties and go to another career for 20 years and maybe a third career for the third, you know, in all of this. So this is all going to, there's momentum in this, this social change that is happening and it's going to get louder and louder as people, as more and more people are like the 40 people that are in the book. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned life layering a couple of times, and this is one of the things I think it brings in your story so beautifully, and also I love the concept of it. So um, I, I I laughed when I read this, that you, this is at the time you had become the publisher of GQ Magazine at 34, and there you had a lot going on for yourself and in your life professionally and Anyway, but you said and in your late 30s, you decided you were the most boring person you knew. <laughs> so <laughs> you decided yeah. to start layering. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what life layering is and what that looked like for you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it is true. I, you know, I had a great professional life. I had a great family life. I was 39, but I was like a really boring person because all I was doing was working. And that, that is, that aha moment came to me. um, And I said, I've got to do something to shake it up. And so I've always had this adventure streak in me, sort of, and and, and I always say to people, identify what is your streak. Mm. So mine was, I always had this adventure streak. And so I decided at 39, that at my 40th birthday, I was going to do three adventure things, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, take a flying lesson and go to the Skip Barber Racing School for race car driving. And as you mentioned, I became a pilot and I ultimately climbed many, many mountains, but I made this proclamation that in my forties were going to be my adventure years. And I created what I call this layer of life, which was non-work, non-family. And I think it's important for every individual to identify what it is that interests them as the individual, forget the partners and the kids and the extended family, what is relevant and important for you. So now, you know, 25 plus years later, my adventure layer, which I built on for that 25 year period, is rich and robust. I have had many, many adventures. I've, as you pointed out, traveled to many exotic places. I was in Ethiopia just before the pandemic hit, uh, running marathons in Antarctica and Mongolia. You know, this, this was my thing. 
And in my 50s, I added another layer, which was around photography and the creative aspect of photography and had many shows and, and published photography books. And in my 60s, my layer is, you know, a much deeper dive into philanthropy. And the reason I think life layering is so important is that I'm not a big, a big advocate of chasing happiness. I'm a big advocate of chasing fulfillment and satisfaction, which leads to happiness. And if you find the things that are of interest to you and you layer them into your life, what happens is you are then have a, a, a basket of self-identities. So for me, I was able, when I stepped out of my professional day-to-day -day seat, um, which was a really amazing seat, I was able to say, hey, I'm an adventure traveler, I'm a marathoner, I'm a photographer, I'm a writer, I'm a pilot, I'm a this, I'm a that. And it was a very rich sense of self-identity. So you can start, one can start life layering at any age. You know, it is great if you can start when you're younger, but you can start that at 70. You can create a new layer at 70 on something that's really of interest to you. That's the beauty of it. And so the, the chapter is not only my own story, but a prescriptive of how to do it. Um, and it, it is, you know, it's a great way to build out your full humanness, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to be able to have a satisfying and engaged life. Yeah. And I, I when I read this and you said that you actually um, really 20 years before you even left publishing, you had kind of started building out what was going to come next without mm. giving up, of course, your current life. Um, and, mm. and I would think that. You, you, I've heard stories before when, um, particularly, I, I hate to gender stereotype, but I think mm. it's often, at least historically, folks who have identified as male, when they mm -hmm. retire, all of a sudden they are purposeless and kind of wandering around going, what am I doing with my time? Um, but I would think that if you are life layering or creating this in advance of what comes next, you have something, like you said, fulfillment, something that fulfills you when you let go of, of perhaps the professional side of your life and, or I guess retire is not a good word. <laughs> I know you don't like it, but when, when you leave, when some people leave a certain profession behind, um, that you will have something to step into so that you aren't just left a little rudderless. Yeah, no, you're right. I'll pick, I will pick on my gender as well, because <laughs> I do think it is a bit of a male thing because men tend to, put all of their self-identification into their professional basket. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, this is kind of how we're wired. I don't know. That's changing with younger, younger men, I hope. Yeah. But yeah, so, so here's the thing that I recommend to people, and this is always a part of um, the storytelling in, in the book too, is if you know that you are in a process where your first career you're going to wind it up or you want to wind it up or you're being forced to wind it up start you know a year or two in what i call creating the parallel life so for me my parallel life was also aside from 20 years of the life layering discussion as i got closer to my my end date on the day to day what I did is I started the program at Columbia. So I started the master's degree and I joined another nonprofit board. I'm on several nonprofit boards now. I have my own foundation, as you suggest, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I knew that philanthropy was going to be a, an important part of my next, my next life. 
Um, and so I started that, you know, a year before I stepped out of the day to day. So I always say to people, begin some process. The, the, the line, I'll figure it out when I get there, does not work <laughs> because you flounder, you are confused, you try to recreate what you had, you waste a lot of time. And yes, we all want to be liberated from our day to day work because sometimes it can be a grind. But you have to have a plan. And so, you know, it is I, the people who I talk to, and I know many of them who don't have a plan, I'm always on their back about what's the plan, what's the plan. And, you know, build, build it out because, you know, you are going to, it's going to prevent you from going off the cliff, which, as you said, many people do. And then the, the other thing I would add to that, Sonny, which is, is shocking to people. So let's just say you step out of your day-to-day -day career at 62. I'm just picking a number. And you say, okay, I'm going to spend a year or two like hanging out with the kids and grandkids and take some trips and do all that kind of stuff. And you do that for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I'm 64. Let's see, I'm going to live another 25 years. Can I do this for 25 <laughs> years? <Yeah. laughs> or I better come up with something that's going to keep me a little more engaged. Yeah. So it gets back to doing the work. Yeah. Yes. I want to ask a question. So you feel you, um, I'm, here it is. Okay. Yes. Dr. Anastasia Parsons. Um, and I mm. thought this was interesting. She talks about the fact that many people in their forties and fifties suffer from negative self-talk, like things like I'm yeah. not good enough or I'm a failure. And it, this apparently gets louder and picks up speed as we age, which I guess makes some sense. So I'm curious, you know, I know people that are, um, you know, retired and, and have a lot of regret and they, the coulda, woulda, shoulda syndrome and, oh, it's too late. I it, just, everything's kind of been a failure. I'm just going to pack it up and go home. What, what advice or wisdom do you have for people who are so stewing in regret or feeling like they made a mistake or they've just messed it up so much it's beyond repair and now they're in their 60s or 70s, what do you say to them? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one as well. I mean, I think that Dr. Uh, Cantonis talks about this negative self-talk because, you know, I didn't get the promotion. I failed at this marriage. I, my kids don't, you know, like me, whatever the case yeah. may be. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we can, we can hang on to that like baggage and it just allow it to draw, to dry, drive us down. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of excuses for starters, and it's hard sometimes for people to work through that. One of the things that, that I think has been really insightful, and, and, and this also, this little tool is in the book too, and I'll take it one step further from what was written, is to the, the, the people that are in your life, the most important people who you trust and you value their, their opinion, is ask them two separate questions. The first question is, give me five words that describe me mm. from your perspective. So I asked, you know, 12 of my family and friends, I said, give me 12 words or give me five words rather that describe me. And then I did sort of a little matrix to see what came out. And the number one thing that came out was, was generous. 
uh, generous in time, spirit, money, all the above. And that, that is something I've, I've always self-identified with. So I was glad to get that kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. And that can also lead to a path, you know, for me, obviously, in, in the philanthropy world, generosity is an important thing. The second thing is ask people, what do you think I, what do you think I should do next? Mm. What do you think is important for me to do next in my life? And just ask them, say, you know, it's confidential, it's anonymous, um, give me two or three things that you think I should do next. So it's a very timely discussion because I have a, a good friend who's 55, she is um, divorced, she's successful in business. And as we talked about this, one of the things that I'm encouraging her to do is to do some online dating, which she is you know, completely opposed to. But <laughs> I say, this is how it works today. You know, you can get out there. Well, you should, anyway, she, she should do it. My, she should do it. Yeah, exactly. I so, did it. And I'm <laughs> super happy now. There you go. My sister's, my sister's, you know, partner, she met him online. Yeah. I mean, I can, we can all go on and on. Yeah. Anyway, I'm happy, I'm happy to report that my friend had a great date last night. And so that she met him online. So Yay! there we go. But, you know, you rely on your friends and those you trust to say, you know, what should what do you think I should be doing next? Some of them might say, you know, get rid of that deadhead, you know, partner that you have. <laughs> you know, that's OK. Some of them might say, you know, you got to leave. You're miserable as an accountant. I don't mean to pick on the accountants in the room, but, you know, you're miserable as an accountant. You've always been creative and you've always wanted to be a writer. So, like, what are you doing about it? And so you might go. Uh-huh, maybe I've just been on a wrong path. And I, I think rely on your your relationships and your core people. If you're struggling with, you know, where do I go? Those people presumably think you're the best thing going because they're your friends and your family. So they love you and they're gonna hopefully want to help you. Um, so I say start there. Yes. And um as you were talking about this, it made me think of um uh, one of the folks featured in your book, and I'm looking for her name now. I can tell the story about it. But yeah. this was in, in speaking about what do you do if you if you um, are having some regrets and, and feeling fearful about doing anything. Um, there was a reframe in here that I thought was really helpful, um, changing, I wish I had pursued my talent in oh, to... Oh, I, yeah. I my, think I know which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, my dream is to oh, become... Yeah. <laughs> right, I'll tell, I'll tell the story. Yeah. You know, she is, her name's McGarvey Black. Yes, that's her. She was, yep, she was a sales executive for her whole career, you know, different industries. And when she was in her late 50s, she went through the process that we're all talking about here. And she said, you know, I, and I'll get to the creative gene in a minute. She said, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always been interested in writing. It's always been something that's been my, 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 I'm a good writer, you know, et cetera. And she started taking um, online courses. She did some master classes with Dan Brown. You know, she wanted to be a mystery writer. This was her dream. Uh -huh. And in her late 50s, she, she finally said, you know, I'm going to sit down and finally do this. And she wrote a novel. And as she told in the, in the book, she had 170 rejections. 170, <laughs> folks. <laughs> 170. And she kept going like the little engine that could. And she got a book deal and she published her first book. And she is now 66 and she's published five novels, five mystery novels. And she said, you know what? I'm a novelist. I'm a mystery suspense novelist. And this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Oh. And that was her like moment. 
And what I always say to people when they're stuck is go back to your younger self. What did you leave on the shelf? There was something you left on the shelf because life takes over. Was it a creative gene that you didn't explore? Was it a professional path that you wanted to take? Was it, you know, a different kind of relationship? What did you leave on the, on the shelf when you were younger? And pick up that thread. And she was a great example of someone who did that. And, you know, it, she, she's very fulfilled. She, she and her husband moved to Florida. Her kids are grown up. She's spending her entire, you know, life now as a mystery writer. And she's like, I found my, my purpose and my path. And I found I'm living the life that I want to live. So beautiful. And I think when you're talking about what did you leave on the shelf, it reminds me, I was so tickled by the story of your connection to planes and to flying. And I mm-hmm. loved how, of course, we know from your bio that now you uh, you are a pilot. And um, that was something that you layered in at a, at a much later point in life. But it was something that you had a connection to from the time that you were a very young boy. And I was, man, I was impressed when I read. <laughs> if you don't yeah, no, my, that was my boyhood fantasy was to be a pilot. And then, you know, life goes left and right. But yeah, we all have those things when we were 10 or 15 or 20 that we know um, were in us that we left behind. And so I say, reclaim those, reclaim those at any time in your life, um, because they're still in you. You just have to nurture them. Yes. So I am curious, um, with the people that you interviewed and all of these stories, how did you find these people? Were these just connections Mm -hmm. through in writing the book? Or were there some serendipitous ones that came about through unusual circumstances or what? You know, it was a, it was a combination of things. First of all, some of the people I knew, um, you know, I put the word out to my network that I was writing this book. <clears throat> I hired an assistant whose job was to go out and find people for me. The filter, the filter was it had to be someone who was 45 plus who turned their life 180 degrees and did something different. Hmm. Um, as they were now in their midlife awakening and identifying the new path that they wanted to be on. And I wanted that to be the filter. And, Hmm. you know, I didn't have any other filters against it. I wanted those stories to lead, lead the charge. And, um, you know, we, we, we found some really amazing people uh, who you reference who are, who, who are in the book. And I, that was another thing that I did notice is, of course, there were stories of people like you who really, in terms of their, I guess, in our culture, kind of reached the highest rung of the ladder um, mm-hmm. in, in professional achievement. But there were also people from everyday walks of life. I like that. There were approachable stories. You didn't have to be someone with many degrees and a billionaire to tur- to do something new with your life. Um, do you, are there any stories that stand out to you that were mm-hmm. approachable day-to-day people mm-hmm. that might be in story, mm-hmm. in- inspiring for listeners out there? Yeah. yeah, no, that that was very important to me that we have a, you know, egalitarian representation because not everyone has been as fortunate to, you know, have degrees or advanced degrees in their lives or, you know, have, don't have the kind of 
you know, professional success that that certainly I've had or, or others. So I wanted I wanted the storytelling to be, you know, to, you know, egalitarian. So one one example is a a woman who worked in a restaurant. She was a restaurant um, manager. Her husband worked in construction. They were in a second marriage. They they had I think five kids between them. They uh, lived in the Northeast, and you know they were exhausted by the winters. They were exhausted by the work that they were doing, and they decided that they needed to change their lives. And they the first thing they did is they quit their they quit their jobs and moved to North Carolina, where it's a little more temperate and climate. <clears throat> One of their daughters lived down there. There, um, she um, she was the the woman, Janine, she was unable to, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of a sudden everything was sort of on hold. She went online and she started taking some courses and she ended up becoming a pharmacy tech, which as you know, is in big demand. Mm -hmm. And she also became a nurse's aide. And the healthcare professions are going to go through massive need in the next 20 years, especially with a, the population that's, that's evolving. And she decided that she loved being a nurse's aide because she loved the, the purpose of it. And that's where she was going to spend her time and her energy. And she then went on to do the second course in nurse's aid. And by the way, I would tell you that all of the courses were free. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of money. Money, is, money should not be an excuse for people because there's a lot of money. And there are a lot of states that I don't know what it's like in Washington, but there are many states like Georgia, if you're 62, you can go to get a college degree for free. Um, wow. Or if you're in Tennessee, you can have the Tennessee Promise, which is community college or tradesman, trade school for free. Anyway, she did that. Her husband, who didn't want the back, the backbreaking work of construction, now manages an auto parts store. And so he's got a sane hour, uh, set of hours, and it's much more um, uh, white collar than the, the, you know, being in your fifties and having done 30 years of construction work and they recreated their lives and they're both very satisfied and happy. And, you know, that's a good example. Not, neither one of them are college, college graduates, you know, they're, they came from working class backgrounds, but they feel like they created a new life for themselves that is putting them on a course. Yes. I, I remember that story and, um, love that you chose that one to share. Um, and I can't, you know, I know we're getting close to the end of the hour, so I cannot um, end the show without also mentioning the story. Because as I said, this was an, uh, one of the final chapters of the book or the final chapter of the book in reassessing your community and your relationship with it um, of, of Fred Sievert, former president yeah. of New York Life Insurance. Um, maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> and then at 59, went to divinity school. Do you mind sharing a little bit about him? There you go. Uh, Fred was some. Fred was somebody that I knew because we served on a nonprofit board together, and he, you know, I, I would say he exemplifies the, the one of the messages of the book, which is, um, you know, being true to oneself and living a life that one really wants to live and explore. And this was something he had always had this interest in um, leaving the business profession and going to divinity school and really spending um, his life in, in, in that area. And he's 72 today, and he has spent a decade writing and speaking about his faith, what he calls his own form of ministry. 
and you know he's done he's done many other other things um you know he would call it you know a service to his own self-identified christian community and he's got his website i think it's called storiesofgodsgrace.com and you know this is so that was 59 a couple of years at divinity school he's now 10 years out he'll do this for the rest rest of his life you know i think that the one the one thing that fred exemplifies and and this is this gets back to your question about courage that how do we finally make the decision especially when we're at midlife and we've lived a life that living the life that is important to us as individuals takes front and center. And there was a book that I talk about in Roar, which you may recall, it has sort of a somber title. It's called The Five Regrets of the Dying. I interviewed Bronnie Ware. (laughs) Ah, there you go. (laughs) Yes. One of my my favorite books. Yeah, me too. Because it's, it's an encapsulation of wonderful life lessons that are universal. And as you know, the one thing that really stuck in my mind is the feedback she got from people when they said, I wish that I had been more true to myself. I wish I had listened to my own North Star. I wish I hadn't spent my life satisfying other people for whatever reason. And that to me is the beacon, the shining beacon of this. When, When do you have the courage in your one's life to step out onto your own center stage and say, this is my North Star and this is what I'm going to do to lead me in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yes, it takes courage. Yes, it takes guts. Yes, it takes all the things we know. But, you know, how important is that for us to all do to have fulfilling and satisfying lives is the question. And I would say it takes everything. I yes, I love that you are bringing our show to a close with that. Um, and a, the book, I hope I didn't step on toes. If any if you, listening, if it was a hard time hearing that, the author's name is Bronnie Ware, and uh, the the title of the book is "The Top Five Regrets of the Dying." Is that that's the title, right, Michael? Yep. Okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, thank you. Um, yeah, and and I I um I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Um. And thank you so much, Michael Clinton, for joining me on Sunny in Seattle to talk about your new book. The name of the book is Roar into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. Um, Michael, thank you again. I just want to give your website so folks can find out more about you and the book. And that is RoarByMichaelClinton.com. That is RoarByMichaelClinton.com. Um, any final, we've got 30 seconds left, Michael, anything you want to leave it with, or did we already no. bring it? <laughs> no, I thank, thank you for all that. And I thank you for having me on the show. I love the conversation and I am, um, I, I love all of the things that you're doing as well, Sonny. You know, I think for what I've, what I, through a lot of encouragement, we're going to launch a newsletter in January on the topic nice. for people who are interested in the subject and you can sign up on the website. And there's a lot more that's going to happen in the rural world. But I think I, as you said earlier, I'm hoping to be a voice in the space to lead us all into this new kind of exciting future. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. You have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.